Matt Ranney is the Chief Systems Architect at Uber, a transportation and logistics technology company. Matt, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You gave a talk at the recent QCon San Francisco where you talked about scaling Uber, and you started with some history. You explained how Uber started in 2009 as a PHP MySQL application, and over the next five years built up into a much larger application. Leading up to this August 2015, where Uber built out a sophisticated microservices architecture. And I want our conversation to focus on this microservices architecture, but to give us some context, what were the major pieces of technical debt that accumulated at Uber over the first five years? Wow. So, um, so I, I will have to, I'll have to go through some of this, um, you know, as a, as a software archeologist, because I've only, <laughs> I've only been at Uber for, for a year and a few months now. So, um, but I have sort of gone through the, you know, the history as much as I, as I could find. So I, I think that it's, it's interesting, like when you, when you consider technical debt to like, if, if what you want to know is like, what are, what are like the bad things that we still like wish that we could, uh, you know, they're, they're like in the way that we wish we could get rid of um, versus like things that we did and they're fine and kind of like, I don't know, we'll, we'll eventually, you know, we'll eventually build something better, but we can sort of just scale our way around them. Because um, I, I feel like they're, people use the term technical debt like pretty liberally. And uh, I don't think it always means the same thing. And cer- certainly in this case, there are, you know, in, in the case of Uber, like we, we have both kinds, like there are, there are many kinds where like it's annoying um, like it's kind of you know inefficient but um, we can deal with the, these trade-offs that we made when we are a, a much smaller organization uh, we can just scale our way out of like we, we built you know luckily we built scalable systems so we can just add more computers to scale most of our things or in some cases you know buy bigger computers or, or you know faster some things um, but there are a number of things where where it really like it just it, it hits a wall, and so I mean I think that the main thing uh, around that that that's hitting the wall, hitting all kinds of walls all over the place for us is around database selection and how we'll have traditional, very responsible databases like a MySQL or a Postgres, and those things uh, somehow eventually you will get more database interaction than will fit on a single machine, and so we did. Very, you know, various kind of simple, you know, simple sharding, verti- vertical sharding, if you like, of, you know, just like making the computers bigger and or like just getting different databases for different parts of the application. But eventually even those uh, sort of run out and the database is too slow and we got to do something, right? And so that there are still a bunch of those in the, in the Uber uh, architecture that we're, we're trying to, trying to get rid of. And those are, those are definitely things that, that are in our way, but but I guess we've we've been sort of sort of lucky in that because the we're not dealing with the kind of scale of like uh, a big like like a Twitter or Facebook or where where we're trying to do you know incredibly high traffic when, and make just tiny fractions of a penny on every transaction. Uh, our traffic is relatively low. It's just that the value of every transaction is is really really high. So it thus far we've been able to sort of justify just like throwing computers at the problem to sort of scale our way out of most of those um, things of technical debt. Okay, that's a really interesting contrast between the Uber scaling versus the, a Twitter or a Facebook. Um, so, but in order to get yourself away from 
this technical debt that you, uh, you know, the, the technical debt that you actually would consider technical debt you want to move away from rather than just stuff you can pave over with more compute power. Uber moved towards microservices. At a high level, why do microservices offer a strategy that can alleviate this technical debt? Well, let's see. Um, I mean, that's a, that is an interesting question. Um, cause I, I think in many ways, um, microservices make it easier to accumulate technical debt more quickly. <laughs> yeah. You, at QCon, you showed this graph of how services, the number of services have increased at Uber over time. And it, it was kind of daunting. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is an interesting idea and it's, it's something that we, that we grapple with pretty, pretty regularly. Um, so I think that like the the reason the reason having a you know ha- having a, a microservice in the first place like makes sense. It's it's I mean it's worth revisiting that. Like so so like why why would you ever want to break something from from one thing into many things? Because <laughs> as soon as you break it into many things, like now it just becomes harder to work on. It's harder to solve problems. Like it's harder to debug. Um, harder to just like to understand how the whole system works. And of course, like the reason is that it allows people to sort of, you know, allows teams to move independently. And, and when you, when you look at it that way, like about like what, what would cause team, you know, what would allow teams to move independently? I mean, I think that's different than what, you know, I I think we've, we've somehow these days, like microservices, like super trendy, um, you know, monolith is bad. Um, but but I don't know that, um, I mean, if you were a one or two person company, I think monolith p- probably fine. I, I think really the, the main reason to, um, to, you know, to split things out is so that teams can work independently and move, you know, move independently. And if you don't have that problem, I'm, I'm not actually sure that it, that it helps that much. It, it might actually just make, make things worse. So, I mean, I guess to answer your question, like, I, I think it, it, I think we accumulate it faster, <laughs> but you know, um, like what is the point of technical debt? It's like, it's in a way it's analogous to real debt, which is just like, you're, you're willing to trade something, um, now in exchange for some problem down the line. And as long as you have a good strategy for making the value always be greater than the cost down the line, then it works out. Like you get to live in a house or <laughs> whatever, like you get to keep scaling your business. And, okay. So yeah. this is, this is interesting. It sounds like the movement towards microservices is more about scalability from a management and a team uh, segregation level rather than some sort of like technical architectural thing. Um, and maybe this is motivated in part, I, I think you, you focused on this statistic during your talk of Uber scaling from 200 engineers to 1500 engineers in like a year or what was it? Was it a year and a half? Yeah, just, just over a year. Yep. Ah, that, that's insane. Yep. Um, so, but one thing that you mentioned during your talk that I thought was really interesting is you suggested that after some period of time, a microservice should be immutable. And you drew a comparison to Netflix's idea of immutable infrastructure. Could you explain this analogy in more detail? Sure, yeah. Well, so so just you know to 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 recap, like you know, immutable infrastructure um, is is kind of a, a thing you can do in this modern era of you know cloud computing, where you you the the machines that you you're running your things on are 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 all commodities. They they are cattle, not pets, as they say. And so you can um, when you when you make 
some, you know, this base image that you're running on, you know, this, this sort of operating system image that, uh, that is your computer, uh, you never have to change it uh, because you have this just commodity pool of, of, uh, of computing infrastructure. And so that's pretty cool. And this is, you know, uh, as opposed to something like a, a chef or a puppet, like running on your actual live instance, sort of changing it out from under you. And that is, you know, I think how most people start out, certainly how, how most of the Uber infrastructure still is, is that we, we use Puppet and it, you know, wakes up every hour or so and tries to reconfigure everything and you hope it doesn't just take the whole company down because like the Puppet got messed up, um, which, you know, this is like, you ask anybody who still, who, who runs a system like this and they will tell you some horror story about how the one day they messed up uh, Puppet and broke the whole thing or, you know, <laughs> or Chef or whatever, right? It's like that always causes like the biggest outages, you know, configuration management uh, changes. So anyway, um, they, that's immutable infrastructure. And I think as we, as we sort of move our way up the stack and, and start breaking these things out into services and, and, and we, we, you you get this very complex system, right? So there are all these different pieces, and they they have all of these kind of these interactions that are they're sort of hard to understand, especially as they age. And so as as software is written and and sort of solves a problem, it's in production. It's like solving problems. There's there's no you know way to take it down. You know there's no maintenance window. There's no you know time to like stop and catch your breath in this this set of you know cur- current world of of rapid rapid scaling from you know the internet and mobile. So, so those things have just got to stay up there. And, and if you couple that with growing a team very, very quickly, um, all the kind of institutional knowledge about like why certain decisions were made and, you know, what sort of what, what the actual purpose of, of some of the software is, uh, that stuff is not available. Whereas, you know, if you, if you had a, a team of uh, that you know, was very mature, you could probably just ask around and say, hey, why is this service A? What, is, what are we even doing that for? And then someone would say, oh, you should look at this and give you a helpful link and or explain to you like, well, if you're going to change it, make sure you also do this because the last time we tried to change it, it was really bad. Um, like those sorts of that sorts of sort of institutional knowledge is not available if your team is growing very quickly. And so I, th- I think that, you know, a couple of those two things together make it very uh, dangerous to ever change something and make it actually much safer to build a new thing. So like we observe this, you know, funny property, I and mean, I'm sure we're not the only people, is that our site is the most reliable on the weekend when, when nobody's messing with it, right? Like that's when it, that's when it never breaks. And that's good actually for Uber's business because our busiest uh, times are we have Friday nights and Saturday nights, but um, that it, it would still be the it would still be the most reliable time anyway, like like Saturday and Sunday, because that's you know that's when you break stuff. The, when you're most likely to break stuff is when you change it, and so um, anytime you you change some of your your services that are that are running, like you're likely to break them, and if you can't uh, get that confidence that you understand all the interactions and you know what you're getting yourself into, it's often safer to just build a new thing. And in fact, I think, I think it's really the, the aversion to, to building a new thing is more just because we don't yet have the kind of the tools, the, the infrastructure, the culture to know how to do garbage collection on those old, you know, the, the, the old software, like, I think this is this is actually sort of the challenge that we find ourselves with. At least, at least we at Uber do, and I I, I feel like 
I feel like when I every time I mention this to to a larger organization that like old services should be immutable, they go, "Oh man, that would be so great! Like I would, <laughs> I would love it if we could just leave those things and never ever touch them and like only write new software and just like make it backward compatible or whatever, and eventually like shut all shut all that old stuff off." But we just don't know how to do that. Like we don't know how to sort of to get ourselves, you know, to get rid of the old stuff and allow ourselves to only write new stuff. But, but I think that's where we need to go. I think that is, that is the, the way to get the most benefit out of, out of breaking stuff out in, into services is if we can always break things into services and then just never touch stuff after it's kind of like had a little bit of time to bake, right? Like if you release some software, like you'll find some initials out of bugs and, you know, after a couple of weeks or whatever, you'll get it stable and, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, the, the, the amount of time that you, that it's sort of still safe to make changes to that thing. Like it starts to, um, you know, it decays pretty quickly. Like the, the longer, the longer after it was initially deployed, the sort of more dangerous it gets. And eventually I think there's a threshold where it's probably better to, to just write something new. So when you, when you have this append only philosophy for microservices, how does that actually get institutionalized? Like, uh, ha- has that actually been institutionalized at Uber? Do do people actually adhere to that? Where or like, has Uber even been around for long enough to where you can say, uh, "Oh, we've got this dusty old microservice, and we we need to basically freeze it in time and append a, a new version of it," or do you fork it? Or so, how does this work in practice? Uh, yeah, so it does not. It's not institutionalized at all, um, but it's it it's just kind of emerged. Um, this is ah. this is just the behavior that that I think any sort of you know rational engineer would make if you come into a company and you're you have you know you're like implement this feature or or, or fix this bug or you know sol- solve some problem that we have for you to solve, and you look at this code that uh, that is working. It's in production and you it will have unknown consequences um if you break it and it just it's just safer to build a new thing and then just try to steer the traffic toward the new thing and i mean i i think that's just it, i mean it's it's an emergent behavior based on a common i think these 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 situations are are actually common in all organizations even if they're not growing so quickly it's just that because of our rapid growth that these factors are are greatly accelerated, and I think that's just why we notice them. But sure, yeah, it's it just kind of emerges. Yeah, that makes sense. So most of the services at Uber are written in Node.js and Python, which are both single-threaded, and this leads to the necessity of having many more instances of these services than you might have in a JVM-based language. And you talked about this in your QCon discussion. What are the consequences of this higher instance count that you get with Node.js and Python services? Yeah, so so there, I mean, there are a few things. Um, what, like, the first is, you know, obviously the the total number of copies of the of the software that's running is is higher than you might you might otherwise get. But and this this sort of stresses some things out, like maybe lo- you know your load balancer or your service discovery or. Or, or that you know, kind of layer of the infrastructure, um, and, th- and that's definitely a thing. But I guess the way the way that I look at it, I I feel like this this is actually more of a feature than a bug, uh, because it it forces engineers to contemplate a true horizontal scalability in their initial designs. If they know that they can only ever get 
one CPU core's worth of performance out of their service, they will just have to make it run on, on multiple CPUs. And the way that that happens, you could, you can, those CPUs could be on any machine. Whereas if you take advantage of the, you know, the multi-threading concurrency, you are, you still have to solve the problem of how do you run on, on multiple machines. And I'm not saying that this is uh, somehow more efficient than, uh, you know, that multiple processes on different machines is more efficient than multiple threads on the same machine. Ob- obviously not. But in terms of problems we actually have, uh, the, the efficiency is, is much less of a concern than, than programmer productivity. Like it's, it's, much, it's a much better use of our, of our resources to buy a few extra computers than it is to, um, you know, to struggle uh, with you know, multiple different ways of, of scaling a, a system and understanding the performance implications uh, of all that. So, so yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that, the, that it, it ends up in the end being, um, being more, more good than bad, although every now and then it's, it certainly is annoying. And that's why we sometimes uh, don't write stuff in Node and Python and we write it in Go or Java instead. You talked about the difficulties of scaling Node, and in particular, the difficulties of scaling an application where maintaining state is really important. For example, in Uber, if the rider has a state of being associated with a specific driver, you don't want to suddenly lose that state while the rider is still in the car. Um, and this kind of harkens back to what you were saying earlier, where the Tra- the importance of a particular transaction from Uber's standpoint is is maybe like more important or higher value than you know the type of transaction that might occur on Twitter or something where you can maybe lose stuff um, with less pain. So in order to keep the state in the service instances themselves, you wrote something called RingPop. What is RingPop? Sure. So so RingPop is a way of sharding application state among a, a group of uh, equivalent coordinating processes. So it's, it's part of the story of you know, how, how we address this issue with, with Node.js only, only using one CPU core at a time, is we wanted to make a, a, a way of, of sort of automatically distributing uh, a key space or you know, some amount of work that you can, you can map onto this key space across a bunch of processes, no matter what machine that they're on. They could be, it could be 24 uh, instances on the same machine or, you know, spread across, uh, across some number of other machines. And it's a, it's a library that you put in your process and the instances of the library kind of all talk to each other and they, they establish them. There's a, there's a gossip protocol that they talk to each other and they, they use this gossip protocol to build a membership list, which from which they can build a consistent hash ring. And the, the consistent hash structure is, is the way of, um, mapping a, a key space, some you know, some portion of the key space to one of the workers, such that if if one of of these n workers uh, were to be added or removed, it only uh, reshuffles one over n of the key space, as opposed to sort of naive hashing, where if you had you know ten workers and then you you got an eleventh one, like you have to sort of you would have to rehash every single bit of the key space. Like if you just did mod, you know, like server key mod server count, um, then that, that's naive hashing is, is super, uh, super inefficient in terms of reshuffling. So we, basically we, we do all this, this kind of like extra, um, like extra cleverness with the, with the gossip and the, and the consistent hash to, to minimize churn as nodes in the cluster come and go. 
Yeah, and I would encourage any listeners who are unfamiliar with the consistent hash ring data structure to check it out. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's a pretty interesting data structure. Um, so the problem that ring pop is solving, it seems like this is a problem that has been around before. Why did you have to write your own? Haven't there been other solutions to this problem? Yeah, so um, there, there certainly are. I mean, the, this... This problem is is very similar to to how databases like uh, React or Cassandra, uh, you know, do like coordinate requests um, or, or just sort of route requests through through their own cluster. And I mean, it was it was inspired from working with both of those databases. And the 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 difference is like there that we wanted to have like in application control over how this you know the the, the details of how some of this stuff works. And so, so yeah, there, there are other solutions uh, for doing this, but, but none of them had uh, a library that you would put into your program that was sort of tightly coupled with your application logic and its state. Um, there, there are, you know, external ways of, of using a database or other like coordination systems to, um, to, to sort of do this. But yeah, we, by by tightly coupling them, uh, it was it was a lot easier to to reason about a lot easy, a lot easier to debug, and then uh, specifically the issue we were trying to solve when we first started was we wanted the 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 fate to be to be guaranteed of the the health of the the node, like, like the sort of the the piece of the key space with the actual application process itself. So like if the process gets stuck or broken or some way. Um, it's only one process. There's just that, just that instance of that of that node process, and so the the other nodes will will more reliably mark it as failed, um, as opposed to if we'd used uh, some sort of outboard uh, coordination system. Uh, sometimes those states get out of whack. Okay, um, so did you did you just define like the a difference between ring pop and zookeeper? Yeah, so so Zookeeper, or I mean, there there are some other um, shoot, I can't remember. I'm I'm failing on 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 the name of the, there. There are a couple of other systems that you can use um, to to sort of do external coordination, um, like a raft based. Yeah, system, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or even even uh, a loosely uh, a loosely coupled um, system. And uh, eh, I'm gonna hang on. Yeah, but so anyway, it, it doesn't. You can you can look up um, the the HashiCorp one. There's another. They have a, they have an outboard uh, 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 sort of like a sidecar process that you you could run uh, that would that does something very very similar to this um, that you can use to sort of coordinate a you know a hash ring and does the gossip and 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 figures that out as a as a process that runs next to your process and that's we were we were using that initially and that was sort of where where we ran into the problem of the of the, the states often getting, getting out of whack where hmm. the, the process was, um, was not, uh, you know, the process would be stuck or broken and the, the ring would still think that it was up because the sidecar was still up. Um, that, that type of deal. Hmm. And, uh, ring pop is based on this paper called, uh, scalable weekly consistent infection style process group, membership protocol doesn't that sound awesome uh, it does <laughs> it sound really so cool. awesome <laughs> it's like man i want to get into computer science man <laughs> <laughs> so is this like a this sounds kind of like a bayou type of system mm. as opposed to uh some you know something more like a paxos type of type of system is that accurate like what are what are the key takeaways 
from that paper that that you applied to Ring Pop? Well, so I mean, we looked at the swim paper and implemented it. <laughs> like we just we just looked mm. we we just went through the thing step by step, and we're like, okay, then you do this, then you do this. Okay, great. <laughs> Let's. Um, we we actually spent uh, spent a fair bit of time in the literature uh, when you know a year or so ago when we were uh, when we were starting on this project, um, trying to figure out the right set of trade offs for for the system that we were trying to build. And we we may sort of revisit some of these other ideas, but but sort of swim was the most directly a- applicable uh, th- thing that we wanted to do that you know had had the right set of trade offs, and 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 the main one is the W in swim, which is main main one uh, the most controversial or um, worth pointing out because it it highlights a, a very important trade off, which is that we wanted we wanted to build a system that is weakly consistent, um, not because consistency is bad, but because as a trade off we would prefer to be up. Like if if we couldn't maintain consistency, we would prefer some amount of availability. Um, mm. We'll prefer some answer to uh, sorry we can't get you the exact right answer. We're down right now. And that is a that is a very like explicit trade off that we are making in most most new systems that that we're building. Uh, we favor availability over consistency. Mm, very interesting. Yep. So so that and, and you might wonder like, isn't that like you're moving money around? You're moving people around? <laughs> like like you can't do that. And I mean, obviously, like it's not like it's wrong all the time. Right, it's like it's almost always right, like because this 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 trade off only comes into play when things are horribly broken, when mm-hmm. when things when just really bad stuff happens and and things are not going well, um, you know, you lose a bunch of nodes all at the same time, or you know, things are are bounding back and forth, you know, like the, those are these are really really tricky, you know, like some some network partition like comes and goes. Uh, in with some oscillation like this, that's just like the nightmare scenario for uh, for a system like this. But you know, it, it's so so rare that we would we would prefer that um, we uh, <clears throat> like we we optimize for the for you know. Let me let me say this again. Like it's not like it's constantly broken. It's almost always works. But in these rare cases where something super bad happens, we want to be able to have as much of it working as we can, as opposed to saying, sorry, the whole thing's broken. You just can't do anything. And it turns out that even when these things, these bad things do happen, the, you know, doing as good, uh, you know, getting as close to we can is the right answer. Um, it, it's almost, almost always makes our users happier. And we have to have human beings around to correct for errors anyway. Like there are bugs in so in software, their networks are flaky, like weird stuff happens. Um, and so we all we already have to have human beings able to sort of correct things if they if they really break. And so this is just one more one more time when when we'll have to we'll have to lean on that is if we get the wrong answer, maybe a human being well, has to go. It, it's it's always nice to see really direct applications of cap theorem because, like, you can't you know you can't give up partition tolerance. So, in the worst case scenario, you've either got to be consistent or available, and you made your decision. And it's you know you you assess the trade offs, and um, you know uh, obviously it sounds like the the you know the jury's still out a little bit, but. Um, you know, you, it's well reasoned. Yeah. Um, but so while you were working on Ring Pop, you encountered a problem that led you to designing a protocol called T Channel. Mm. Uh, and this is some more open source software that Uber uh, 
as published. Uh, describe the problem you had that led to the development of T Channel. Sure. So we were so we we'd implemented uh, we'd implemented Swim in in, in Ring Pop and. And I worked on um, some other, I mean, there, there are some sort of known limitations in the swim paper and we we're like, oh, we should address those while, while we're in there. And we kind of had kind of our like, you know, modified kind of fancier swim. And uh, we were pretty happy about that, except we were doing it all over HTTP and it was really slow. Like we were finding that just in a, in a, in the steady state, like the, just like gossiping around like the the costs of using HTTP for gossip were very high. And the reason, so if you read the swim paper, they they talk about doing the gossip over UDP. And then if you if you need to have the have the notes talk to each other, they do they should do whatever they want to do. But we we knew that we wanted a system that was a, a fully connected mesh, which by the way does limit the the maximum the S in scalability. Like we'll probably uh, run into the limitations of a fully connected mesh uh, before we uh, run into the limitations of of the the protocol itself. But anyway, that's that's a that's a trade off that 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 we're okay with making. And the reason we want the fully connected mesh is because we want to minimize the the forwarding latency when a node wants to send a request to another node. We want there to be an already established connection ready to go. So we're doing this over HTTP, and it was really really slow. So. Because of my experience in the in the Node world, I uh, you know we we're early adopters of of, of Node at my, at my last company, Voxer, and and while there we were big users of Redis, and so I wrote the the sort of the what what most people use the Redis client that most people use now in in Node.js, and I knew from uh, working on that project that you could make a protocol parser in Node that was much, much, much faster than the one for HTTP. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that the Redis protocol is just a lot simpler. There are, are a lot of, you know, very few uh, sort of optional or variable things in the in the responses. And it's just, it's just easy to like read the spec and just like write a parser for it as opposed to HTTP, which has all kinds of these complicated subtleties that um, make it very, very hard to write uh, a fast parser for. So I knew that we could make a we could make a fast protocol parser in Node, and so it's just a not not for HTTP. So I just sat down and thought about what we would like like how like to have for a for an RPC protocol to make Ring Pop go, and that's where T Channel came from. And the initial versions of T Channel were about twenty times faster than the Node's HTTP. So wow. this was massive. <laughs> so um, we uh, we have a massive, massive speed up. And then once we did that, uh, the, the overhead from gossip was negligible. Like it would, it wouldn't, it never showed up on any of the, um, on any of the profiles. And so we win. And so that's, I mean, that was sort of initially intended just to be like the ring pop protocol. Like that's, that's why we wrote it to begin with. But then, <laughs> but then later we started using. We we're like, man, if this is this is so good, like it'll make, <laughs> it makes your node program like so much faster. Like we're using HTTP everywhere else. So then the the next natural thing was to just start using uh, T channel just for node programs talking to each other. Yeah, uh, with that regard, you've described Uber as wanting to get out of the HTTP and JSON business altogether. Mm, yep. So. Um, so an, another issue you talk about with scaling Uber is service discovery. Hmm. What are the service discovery problems you have had while scaling? Sure. So, so some of this is is the kind of the legacy that that we just sort of inherited. You know, like the 
the initial Uber system uh, made very reasonable trade-offs for for a company of that size, and then just at some point, like we just we just had to, you know, we just hit the limits of that, and we had to do something else. Um, and then the others are related to the 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 language choices. So in the in the Node and Python world, uh, the the options for for existing service discovery systems are limited. Um, most people who solve this problem at scale are doing so with JVM-based languages, and so there are many examples of, of systems that we would we would like to use, or there are a few systems that we would like to use that uh, that work really well if you're on the JVM, but sort of don't if you're in uh, Node and Python. And so we we also lo- you know looked around at some of the way that these things worked and found that a lot of them make the CP trade-off. Um, and you know, I, I, as I said before, we're trying to build, uh, make any, all the new stuff that we build, uh, we're trying to build AP systems. And especially for service discovery, like of all the places in your infrastructure where uh, availability should be favored over consistency, uh, service discovery seems like an obvious, like not even a <laughs> controversial one, because like, who cares if you have the exact list of all service A's, like, do you want to say like, sorry, you can't add new service A's in the event of a sort of catastrophic, you know, network change? Um, well, that is a trade-off you'd make if due to, if you ha- build service discovery on, on top of a CP system, you might not be able to make progress. And if, if you can't, if you can't make a quorum. And so that seems like a really bad trade-off for service discovery. And so, you know, that coupled with the fact that, that uh, you know, the, the challenges with Node and Python uh, led us to go develop our own service discovery system, uh, which is also on the on the open source uh, site, which is which is called Hyperbon, and that's there's kind of like a, a logical progression there of like first we were trying to solve this you know application sharding and that was too slow, so we did T channel, and then meanwhile like the whole thing is growing like crazy, and we're like wow, how are we going to like really handle this you know b- build a system that'll that'll get out in front of this this scale uh, you know ramp that we're on. And that's that's what led us to Hyperbon. So it's so interesting. It it sounds like you know I don't know is Uber like the first uh, like highly scaled AP top to bottom system that has ever been built? Is that like is that why you have to build all these services? Um, maybe I I think I think we have a couple of things uh, a couple of things happening. Like one is that the the business itself is growing like crazy. And two is the the engineering team probably growing faster than any engineering team has ever been grown. And so right. in out of that kind of chaos like ah uh, it it's like it's hard to do like a precise analysis and say well this is why we had to do it this way like like I don't know these these things have just kind of emerged but but it's it's certainly related. Um, it's it's if we had had time to kind of contemplate and do some design and you know think about uh, our our next move and carefully focus our resources, um, would we maybe we would not have uh, have come to this place. But it was it was just sort of a like like the the natural kind of response to having all of this chaos like like. Like no, no one on the business side wants to hear uh, slow down. Like if we said, sorry, features are delayed. We got it. We just have to do an engineering regroup. Uh, they're like, no, <laughs> wrong answer. Uh, figure it out. Like do something. Uh, we're not slowing down the business. Uh, on the engineering side, you guys can 
like do whatever you have to do to just keep this thing uh, working and scaling and at you know outmaneuvering the competition. Um, in in light of those factors, um, I think we just we did what we had to do, you know. And may, may, is it the largest uh, sort of AP system? Like I don't know, maybe. I think that um, I think that there are a lot of systems that are built this way that are even larger scale. Um, but maybe not top to bottom. But to be fair, Uber's not top to bottom this way anyway. It's it's mostly legacy. I mean, the things that we talk about uh, in public talks are all the fancy new stuff that we're building because it's like new yeah. and fancy and awesome. And that's you know that's what everybody does, right? Like you're not going to say, "Here's my QCon talk on like the boring old crap that I inherited that I wish I didn't have to work on." <laughs> like I hope I hope we can replace as soon as possible, but it's really complicated and nobody understands it. Snooze fest, right? Like no one wants to hear that talk. Um, and so, so, but I mean, if you look at the world of Cassandra, right? Like, uh, you know, I think they, they've publicly admitted now that, uh, that Apple has these just ginormous clusters, right? Like that, the, these, the Cassandra footprint of Apple, um, you know, uh, Cassandra being, being a, you know, famously AP database, um, is, uh, larger than the, is that true? I think so. Well, it's at least equivalent uh, to the entire server server footprint of, of Uber. So, I guess that that's probably one uh, that's you know one incredibly large AP system. Uh, so, I mean, there certainly are examples, but I, I bet you nobody has it top to bottom because even mm-hmm. we don't. Right. Okay. Well, I I know our time is drawing to a close, but um, you know, just a couple more things. Um, you know, during your talk, you mentioned. Uh, this presentation that Jeff Dean of Google gave called Achieving Rapid Response Times in Large Online Services. What were the key takeaways from that presentation that you've applied at Uber? Yeah, so I, I have to say, I, I saw that uh, I saw that talk um, a couple years ago and what, that he gave, and it was very enlightening to me at the time. Um, I, I had just never considered uh, the, you know, t- like I, w- I was really into distributed databases and uh, I had never considered applying some of those same techniques to, to RPC uh, systems. And the, like the, the main thing is this idea of backup requests and specifically backup requests with cross-server cancellation. So the, the idea with, with backup requests is that if you have a if you have an RPC like a like a, a message you want to send from one process to another from one you know microservice instance to another microservice instance, um, you you might have uh, this these problems with uh, with latency sort of out at the at the you know the P ninety nine and beyond. This is this is a very very common problem. Is that in in general the thing works great? It's just that one percent of the time it works not so great, and and especially in a in a big microservice architecture with a lot of fan out, you you increase your chances of of hitting that slow case. Uh, the more the more of these instances that you use, and the the interesting idea from from this from this talk is that you could actually send the same request to multiple nodes, and whichever one responds first, that's the response that you'll use. Mm. But but this sounds this is kind of inefficient, right? Because now suddenly you would have to do twice as much work, and you know you would need if every request was actually two requests. Uh, this sounds very expensive, and and indeed that that is very expensive. So the the really clever technique is 
that you would send it to one node and then add a slight delay and then send it to another node. But then you would also tell the tell the nodes that you had done this. And so that they that you know each of the of the sort of the, the the serving nodes would would be in on this this sort of backup request scheme, and when they go to work on this thing, they would cancel the request from each other, and so in that way, in the common case, the work only gets done once. There's a little bit of extra uh, RPC overhead, uh, so as long as you can make that fast, then your users have a much better experience because these random latency blips that you might get from GC pauses or process dying or just, you know, general confusion um, out at the, at the, you know, P99 and, and beyond, uh, the, those effects are minimized because the request just gets handled by the other, by, the, by, you know, the backup request kicks in in that case. And that is a, that is a fascinating and, and powerful technique that that I I just don't hear people uh, talking about much in the in the world of RPCs, but it's it's exactly how the the Dynamo based you know database systems work, like your Reacts and your Cassandras, is they send these requested multiple uh, to multiple nodes. I mean, you know, in many cases they send it to like more than two, like to three or or whatever. And then as soon as you hear back from, let's just say, two of the three, then you can respond to the client. And then that has the effect of if the if one of those nodes is really slow, it doesn't matter. Like it just got in last. And as long as the first two agree, you can respond. It's the same kind of idea, uh, but applied to, to RPCs. That's great. Just to close off, there is one more thing you mentioned at the end of your talk that was really interesting. You suggested that we should embrace the chaos. Mm. Um could you give me one quick example of how you have embraced the chaos recently, as small as you want to make it? Sure, sure. Well, and yeah, so I think that's a that's a really interesting idea because I, it, it's a subtle kind of word choice thing, but I, I think a lot of people look at uh, the sort of big microservice thing or rapid growth or whatever, and they say, "Oh my God, it's so chaotic. Um, we need to we need to tame it. We need to like crush this chaos and get it more more organized and orderly." and I think that's a you know a reasonable goal, but but it, it's often really really hard. And it's, in our cases, I've I've concluded our case I've concluded that it's impossible that um, that we just live in a world of chaos. And I kind of think that everybody does that they just kind of don't want to admit it because uh, it makes you feel bad, right? Like uh, I'm a computer scientist and I have algorithms and provable correctness or whatever, and now you're telling me that my thing is all like chaos with the random failures and like it just feels bad, right? So uh, I think that you can't really tame chaos in in these kind of big scale systems. That the best thing that you can do is embrace the fact that uh, things are just going to be breaking and weird all the time. And try to make your system work as well as it can in light of those conditions. And so this is kind of like the philosophy behind the, the Netflix simian army, you know, Chaos Monkey or whatever. And and it, you know, a, a, a simple, the, the simplest way to to that, you know, the, the that I can talk about like how we embrace it is requiring failure testing, like mandatory failure testing. So before you can put your new service in production, you have to subject it to failure testing, both in you know dev staging or whatever, but also even after you release it. Like once you release this thing, it has to be continually failed in production, and that is um, 
you know, because that, that matches the real world. And if you can make a system that can survive this random failure testing, then you will more likely survive whatever other chaotic conditions uh, exist. Okay, well, that's great. Matt Ranny, thanks so much for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. I will let you get back to building out the uh, next generation of our infrastructure. <laughs> um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Great, thanks a lot. <laughs>